This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You are the leader in the courtroom, and you want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. When you figure out your theory, never deviate. You want the facts to be consistent, complete, incredible. The defense has no problem running out the clock. Delay is the friend of the defense. It's tough to grow a firm by trying to hold on and micromanage. You've got to front load a simple structure for jurors to be able to hold on to. What types of creative things can we do as lawyers, even though we don't have a trial setting? Whatever you've got to do to make it real, you've got to do to make it real. But the person who needs convincing is you. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, I've got a great lawyer out of the Denver, Colorado area, Peter Michael Anderson. Peter has been knocking it out of the park lately. Uh, Just this year, 2023, we're only not quite four months into it. He already has $12 million in verdicts, just been kicking butt and taking names, and he's been nice enough to come and share a little bit about how he's learned how to do it and how he's doing it. Uh, Before I get to Peter, though, I just want to say thank you to Law Pods. Law Pods is the company that sponsors, produces, edits, and does everything to make my life easy for this podcast. They make my life uh, very easy. They handle all the little technical things that I don't know how to do, and I really appreciate them. So if you're thinking about running a podcast yourself, I do recommend Law Pods. That being said, Peter, how are you doing today? I'm wonderful. I'm having a great day. How about you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm actually in a in a friend's hotel room, uh, Steve Gerson's hotel room in Atlantic City, New Jersey. I'm speaking in a seminar in a couple hours, but um, I'm glad that I'm able to talk to you today. Me too. Thanks for inviting me here. So tell me a little bit about yourself. I guess I, I'm from uh, Canada. My, my parents were born in Europe. My dad was born in Scotland. They moved... Uh, to Canada when they were teens. And then I grew up playing hockey on a pond in Canada. And when I was in my late teens, I moved to the United States, to, to Michigan, to New Jersey, was an ocean lifeguard in Cape May, New Jersey, and um, uh, lived all up and down the East Coast and, and went to law school at night, worked for an insurance defense firm as well as a defense firm. And I'm one of those lawyers who right out of law school, night law school, I, I opened up my own practice and immediately started trying cases. So I was, I was born to be a trial lawyer and it's been, it's been quite a journey. Great. And you've really been hitting it. How many cases have you tried the last couple of years? You know, usually I do about six to seven a year. It's been a busy year this year. I've been in court for more than a month for three jury trials, uh, had a trial in September, November. So it's, it's, but usually about six or seven on average. What do you do to you? you know, to prepare for that many trials? Because you have six or seven going, you're probably prepping for more than six or seven. Preparing for this podcast, I realized I've done things in my life to prepare me for, uh, in, in essence, competition. So I, I played high-level hockey, and then I got into uh, dirt bike racing um, to the point where I have a, a 44-foot rig, and I have a coach, and I, I race probably 12 races a year, and I realized how it, it's so grueling and in order to be the best, there's so much preparation. And so I carry that over to the trial. I'm very religious about my patterns, my time, uh, protecting my choices and protecting my energy. And, and you know, once you do like, like yourself, once you do over 115 trials, 
you, you know, you can reuse different portions and you get into sort of a, a pattern. And um, it, the last trial that ended two weeks ago, it, it, we were like in the groove. We're, we're really coming into our own as this mobile, you know, theater company. Tell me a little bit. Of, what is, you say you have like a pattern and you have like a youth of your time. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, I mean, it, it's um, I've been a practicing Buddhist for, for 20 years. I, I, Michael leeserman has been to my home. I've been to his temple. So a lot of it is, you know, everything from playing certain music in the morning, meditating, having my outfits planned down to the socks and underwear, and also a united trial team. And so everyone, we're, we're a, a, a very cohesive unit working well together and everyone has their roles. Uh, you know, in voir dire is very important, extracting information from the, from the jurors, writing them down for challenge for cause. And then we, we do a lot of things in voir dire that we use throughout trial. I like to say trial is like a play that's writing itself as it goes, right? It's, it's so different from every jurors and judge. So it's essentially just having our, our trial bins, you know, with a check sheet, you know, having six trial bins, having computers. And it's just, you know, the most prepared team with the best trial strategy typically wins. And, and so it's, you know, it's a thousand little things. And once you get all the holes are plugged up, you know, cause it's a war of attrition, isn't it, Michael? Like, you know, you see the other side, you know, start to cognitively decline and miss evidence. And, and so if you can keep your energy and your team, uh, you know, running through those five or, or 10 days, you, you really have an advantage. You said you have a team. Tell me about your team. My team is, uh, I've been a solo practitioner for 18 years of my career, but I'm fortunate to work with an associate who worked for the insurance side for 15 years. His name's Carlo Bonavita. True story, I, I don't check uh, filings often. I, I don't write motions and briefs. The last several years, I've been able to practice my voice work, voir dire, speech. You know, I, I do a lot of focus groups, and really, they're just voir dire practice, to be honest. And then I have an amazing trial paralegal who's been with me at least 12 trials in the last couple of years, and then an, an executive assistant. So my, my firm's actually four people. We're very lean, very selective. And when we try a case, it, it's all in nights, weekends. And, um, and, uh, and the system it is, so that's my team. They're amazing. Couldn't do it without them. They're everything, right? I, I'm just one cog in a, in, a, in a machine trying to do my best. No, it's amazing. You know, the team is so important. I'm getting ready uh, to hopefully try a case. So I was just told we're 20 on the docket, which is not, is not promising, but I was hoping to try a case on May 9th. And uh, I'm working with a lawyer who's a great lawyer, but I've never gone to trial with her before. And she's never gone to trial at our firm. And so, you know, you get so spoiled when you have that team that just works like clockwork. And now I have to say things and explain things and communicate what, you know, someone's not reading my mind because they haven't been there with me many times. Totally. So it's, it's it's different. You also said you have trial bins. What do you mean by trial bins? Oh, just, I mean, books and printers and, and props. I use a lot of demonstratives. So just, you know, do I have my jury book? Do we have everything there? Tables, stands. Uh, you know, I've been doing it like you for many decades. And so we, when we're ready to go, we, we're, we're like a mobile theater company. And we put everything together and we travel to the courtroom and, and we get busy. We, we, we've been churning out jury trials lately yeah what what you said props what kind of i'm one of my fascinations or obsessions lately is okay what kind of three-dimensional objects that i can hold can i use in court what kind of props can you use sure i, I would say everything i do is is to 
match the, the, the bandwidth, the cognitive bandwidth of the jurors. And so, for example, one of, I have props that aren't that sexy, but they're very effective. For example, I have a foam board that has six words on it or six headings that has exam uh, or expertise, evaluation and uh, exam, uh, treatment diagnosis, physical impairments from the crash and future treatment. And so essentially I'm always trying to, when I'm gauging the jury every three to five minutes, switch up the medium, switch up the topic. And so a lot of time that helps me. That's saying, folks, we're going to start here because uh, some jurors want control and they want to know where are we and where we're going to go. So let's yeah. talk about expertise. I use a lot of, um, I use a, a squishy brain and motor, uh, pink and white rope for motor and sensory nerves. And I use a picture of nerves out of the human body. And I've developed an analogy to sort of explain why people are still in pain from these structures and, and why is it getting to the brain? So I, a bowling ball, I use the, the bowling ball a lot. I'll keep it on my table, squishy brain, a lot of foam boards and muscle pro three. That's an app that I use in most trials, which is uh, fantastic for showing the layers of muscles. So those are some of the, 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 the props we use. You said muscle pro three is an app that shows the layers of muscles in the anatomy. Yes. I've been using that every trial for at least the last seven trials. Wow. That's great. You also said you uh, have an analogy that talks about how nerve brings pain to the brain. Can you explain that? I, I do. Uh, so essentially what I, I have is I put up, a, it's a program called doodle and what it is, it's, it's that hand that you see drawing on some YouTube videos. And so I purchased that and I picture a, a, a drawing slowly, a huge tree, and then a building next to it. And I say some, something along the lines of folks talking about, you know, why this, this human's still in pain. And think of the analogy I like to use is think about how um, it's called innervation, how the nerves innervate our body. So imagine a tree and a big, beautiful tree with all of these roots deep in the ground and they innervate the, the dirt and spread out everywhere. So that's like our nerves, right? So our, our, these motor and sensory nerves that go into our muscles, into ligaments, into spine joints. So folks, imagine pick, uh, someone takes a huge corporate building and drops it right next to this tree, carelessly, negligently. And what happens is this weight, the trauma, damages the roots. It puts too much pressure on it. It compresses them, squeezing them, and, and parts of the tree start to die. And the same thing is true with, with Manny, because, folks, nerves carry pain to the brain, right? Nerves carry pain to the brain. Nerves carry signals. And so from those damaged parts, those micro traumas to the discs, to the muscles, to the ligaments, the joints, that is like you know, some the, the tree root being damaged and it sends those signals, the nerve roots from those structures carry pain to the brain. And then we can get, take it a step further and saying, how do we treat these injuries? Well, you got to dig down deep, take a chainsaw and you got to chainsaw the roots. It's called the needle heats up and moves quickly. And sometimes, you know, it, they grow back. And so you can do the analogy of taking a blowtorch and, you know, getting in the thing and, and burning the root. Uh, to stop the pain, but but nerves carry pain to the brain. So I think that analogy people can understand. Oh, that's the that's the micro trauma and why people are are still in pain and there's temporary relief and maybe longer temporary relief, but these injuries are permanent. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. That's already worth the worth me doing the podcast with you. I appreciate that. You also you use a bowling ball. What do you do with a bowling ball? 
So essentially, I whatever I use for opening, I, I usually typically have it in trial. In a bowling ball, the average weight of a human's head is 11 pounds. So I got a beautiful 11 pound bowling ball and I'll use it whether defense, crossing or our clients. And the whole point is if there's not a lot of property damage to, to say, folks, in a matter of, you know, one tenth of a second, these ligaments, these structures, you know, we're trying to keep this bowling ball up. And that's why they're still in pain because you, you can take this, wrap it up and for three months I can stick it over my head. But so it's just a visceral visual about, wow, we like that's the weight of our head and those structures are hurt when they're rear-ended, especially something so big and dangerous like the Goliath semi-truck. Absolutely. So that's great. You know, I've heard of people using the broomstick and bowling ball and stuff, but I've never, I haven't done it. So I've always wanted to see someone do it right so I can try to copy them. Right on. Well, I, um, it took me about two weeks to think, you know, innervate. It's such a word where people, it doesn't roll off the tongue and people are like, it came to me in the middle of the night. I, I have a, a pen that I, I, I really study the brain and use my subconscious to, to help me. And uh, that came in the middle of the night, clicked on my light pen and there you go. I don't know how many trial ideas I've woken up at four in the morning with, or I've had to run out of the shower, <laughs> drop and wet, pedal off, write it down, go back in, finish showering. Totally. Yeah. What did you do to develop? I mean, you've got a lot of creativity. You've had a lot of success. What did you do to build your trial skills? Getting out of night law school. And um, I've always felt like I've had an angel on my back. There's a story with why I became a lawyer watching Matlack with my mom. But when I, the last job I worked was at Lawyers Weekly USA, and I, I flew out to Colorado, I didn't know anyone, passed the bar, opened up my law firm, and I met a guy named Aaron Deshaw, and I flew him out. He had written the book, Colossus, What Every Doctor Should Know, and then Colossus, What Every Trial Lawyer Should Know. And honestly, it was insecurity and feeling not being part of a firm, not having a, a wise lawyer look over my shoulder and showing me. I, I literally became a sponge and started to read everything trial guides and from Nita, from AAJ, from Take Back the Courtroom, Trial by Human, Don Bauermeister. I mean, I've read almost and listened to every product of trial guides. And then what happened with when I became friends with Dr. Deshaw, who owns trial guides, I started to learn the science. And so I started holding medical seminars for chiropractors. And I did it for about uh, over a 10-year period. I had eight yearly conferences where I'd fly in Paul Ivanik, Punjabi's mentor at uh, Yale Biomechanic or university professors, and I would have an entire day at the the the, the Ritz or the Four Seasons, and you know we were getting 150, 160 doctors to attend oh, wow. to teach them about you know the the where science meets service, what's going to happen, and to use it as an education credit. So that really helped me understand these connective tissue trauma cases, and they're serious. And so a lot of my verdicts. The folks watching this, the, the cases are spinal stenosis, disc protrusion, myofascial pain syndrome. They're, they're not, they're real serious injuries. And, and so it's about how to teach a jury simply, viscerally, quickly is, is key. I think it also, you must have done something to teach yourself and open your own mind. Because, you know, we, we fall into this trap. Oh, it's a soft tissue case. It's a non-surgical case. No one's done surgery. Therefore, it's not that big of a deal. Whereas, you know, like. Just because you have a condition that surgery can't fix or help doesn't mean you're not really hurt. It's so true. I, I think for me, I, I, you know, I race dirt bikes. I compete in jujitsu. I, I actually hurt myself a couple times racing and, and doing jujitsu. And if you've ever had facet-mediated pain, you know how awful that is. And so I think the big keys is 
learning the science, learning the psychology, the brain, persuasion. And then truly about five years ago, I read a book called The 5 a.m. Club. I had a dirt bike coach and, and I, I got serious about discipline. And I, I started waking up every morning at 5 a.m. to start practicing voir dire, voice work. And it really has helped. That and all the trials, I'm, I'm really coming into my own. But it's, uh, you know, knowing it is one thing. And then purposeful practice is, is really where, where you excel, where, where it's really helped me get to the next level. Yeah, I think it's more than just the experience. Because I had a judge, he's since passed away, but he said, you know, Michael, there's a difference between a lawyer that's tried 100 cases and who's tried the same case 100 times. Well said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um... So, you know, just that, you know, what I see with you, you know, the, what you're trying to do to, to be creative, to improve, to not do the same thing every time. I mean, yeah, you have like what works you want to keep doing, but it's not like, it doesn't sound like you just have a script that you're following either. And, and I've been privy it's, it, to a lot of the greats. And it's also been a curse because there's so much, it's, it's sometimes hard to select what arguments. And I think the biggest thing, I, I spent a week at uh, Michael Leeserman's uh, temple in October and really just to trust yourself, right? Kind of you prepare and then you kind of got to let it go. Things are going to happen. And, and that fluid, flu, being fluid and calm and knowing that you've prepared is, is I think is, is key, but you're right. I mean, golly, look at you, 116 trials. You start to get into, I, I don't know what to expect, right? Like when I hear of a chiropractor, I don't, you got to tell me more. There's 41 different types of chiropractors. You, when I'm going to trial, I mean, it's apples and oranges. I have some, the rulings. I mean, one thing that I did, 10 trials and everything's going smoothly. This judge, you know, you can't show frivolous defenses, get up in sidebar, take it down. Like, that's crazy. So it's, it's I think judges have a tough job and I don't think there's a lot of uniformity in, in some of their rulings. There's a lot of inconsistencies. Uh, my trial case management are sometimes an hour and a half because I'm just like, I want to know exactly how, how you do it, Your Honor. How, how do you... Run your run the show in your courtroom. I had a judge once not not let me ask leading questions of the officer who blamed my client. Right. You know, so you had to figure out how do you make how do you cross examine somebody without being able to ask leading questions. Now he was wrong, but I didn't want to get a reverse on appeal. I wanted to get a win. And so right. You have, you have to figure out how you how you can do that, and it's uh it can be done, but it's not as effective. But it can be done. It's true, Michael. I, I think the gray hair, and I think a book of case law with three copies has been helping. It's, you know, you set that tone of saying, your honor, this is the right way to rule. And, you know, and then judge start to go, okay, who's, who am I, who, who do I go to? Yeah. Well, this judge just didn't want me to get a verdict. And that's just <laughs> what happened. What we happened, Michael? We got a verdict. It, you know, it wasn't the best verdict I ever had, but it was a lot better than the offer. And, uh, you know, I think it was so obviously against me on everything. The jury saw the injustice. The jury saw me being set down constantly and they, they fixed it. Awesome. Again, it just learned to trust the jury. And uh, sometimes you get hometown. It's just it happens. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes you can hometown folks, right? It's it's knowing it's knowing the environment. It's uh it's it's fun. So tell me a little bit about this one of your recent cases. I think it was it Caro or Caro versus Swift? Caro, yep. It was a two week jury trial in Denver, uh late uh January and February. It um what, what would you like to know? It's, it's, uh, well, let's start with a little, give me a little bit of background about the K. Sure. It was a, it was a hardworking man who uh, spoke English from Mexico, five kids. He was just waiting in traffic and traffic slowed in a Swift driver who was on methamphetamines and, and prescription drugs 
basically ran into traffic. And and yes, the you know about at 22 miles an hour, he what happened was he hit uh, hurt a motor nerve, a fourth cranial nerve in his eye. They made a big deal because he was conversing at the scene. He he drove his car to the dealership and um, and then went to the hospital. And but you know he it was a very hard fought battle. The 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 Swift uh, some very good lawyers, very good litigation counsel in Arizona. And a lot of this was the human harms, right? Because the medical bills weren't huge, and I it was you know, I, and I was able to connect with the the head of Swift Litigation and to share with her about you know why this is so important. And I think so. That's what the case was. We we had you know tons of experts, cognitive neuropsychologists, pain doctors. He had an emotional uh, PTSD element of of his damages. He he never went to get injections. And so there was a life care plan, but didn't go through with a lot of the treatment, but a, a beautiful human being and, and worked for an amazing company, uh, J.E. Hurley. In fact, we kept calling ourselves the J.E. Hurley trial team and beautiful human beings. So I, you know, like everybody, you you learn, you love. And I came into that court. Um, they had at one time, I think, six lawyers on the other side. It was two law firms and it was just me and, you know, my, my assistant, my paralegal and I didn't have my, so I don't have my associate at trial. He he's he's back there, uh, writing trial briefs, and and he's got me if I need him. So, yeah, the the trial was. Um, I, I think one of the, the things that I, that I took away that to help folks on here is I, I I truly trusted myself. I did everything the same. I had my my witnesses, you know, lined up back and forth. But when when it was showtime, I I literally just had. The, the peace, the the love, the ease in my heart, and the execution was was in a very calm manner. So I was focusing on the how to say it. I, the what was all planned out. What I tip, what I do is I I used to do this on a big wall. Now I have a huge foam board, and I take every witness and I and I have half a piece of paper and I put them all up. So you have a big foam board with two weeks of witnesses. And sadly, the judge bifurcated the case. And two weeks before trial, and so the jury never heard about the the marijuana, the, the drugs, oh, wow. the amphetamine, nothing. It was just the car crash case, and I didn't even call the defendant to the stand. It was just it was just a, a truck case with no direct claims because we were operating under a case called Farrier. And I think one of the the big points was I I was very prepared, but when I would meet those people, I as I would literally just turn off my mind. I, I had my trip wires. And I would just have these beautiful conversations. And, and sometimes it got carried away. I remember about three or four days in, I, I, there was an objection. And an objection, you know, and, and I looked over and there's all the Swift lawyers. And he said, you know, Mr. Anderson's just, he's just having a conversation with these folks. And it's not fair. And he needs to move it up. I mean, he needs to, he needs to get going. He's just having this conversation. And the judge says, you know, Mr. Anderson, you've got a unique style. I, I like it. You're just, you're having conversations. But if you move a little quicker... And I did that for cross-examinations too. Same thing. I, I call it citizenship. You know, I had that credibility and, and, and I, I had that calmness. And I remember one time I'm, I, I was a defense expert and the defense expert is, is sharing or he was from Canada, like me. I became a citizen, but he was from Canada. And I said, uh, I said good morning. He says, good morning. I said, uh, you, you wanted to come back to the States as quick as you can, didn't you? And, we, and he's like, what? I said, you, you wanted to move back to the, the States right away. It's cold up there, isn't it? He's like, yeah. And we started having this conversation. And all of a sudden I hear this and we all look up and the judge is looking at me and she says, uh, 
did I do that? Was that me? Was that me? Was that me? And I was like, yes, Your Honor. I, and I looked at the jury and I said, I'm sorry. I, I just like to get to know these folks and have conversations, but let's get right to why you're here. So I think it was just having the confidence of being me and sort of being the, the, the seventh juror and to go, who are you? And what yeah. do you want to say? And it literally just came to me and I had enough belief in myself just to say, you've got this, just go. And very Buddhist, just be present and see what happens. And, and it is beautiful. Can you tell me a little bit more about the human uh, harm in the case? You said it was a fourth cranial nerve case, but what, what was the effect on the human being? This man, essentially for the first six months, he, he had an eye patch and he couldn't drive. And this company got him a truck in the set, two days after the crash and parked it outside. And, and we, you know, he's got American flag. And so it basically, it's connective tissue trauma. So he, his body was hurt, right? And a lot of um, myofascial, a lot of pain. And so he had, but he was a construction worker for this company for 12 years. And so it essentially, you know, he did a lot of, he, he tried to get back to it. And, and of course they played on that. He was able to get on an AT, uh, ATV and so forth. But what, what happened is, and again, I spent so much time and the way I do it is um, I do two things. I, it's called quantitative statistics and I do S and S, a scene and story. Quantitative statistics is sort of with the doctors and scene and story are with my harm witnesses. His harms would be um, he would have panic attacks and he was on a lot of medications healing from, from the connective tissue trauma, from you know the, the, the facet mediated pain and so forth. And so what, what I've, so that was his human harms. And, and yes, he went back to work they had to get some people to help him on the job. Yes, he was able to drive long distances to different states, but it's those little stories. And so what we do, and if I can help some of the folks about what, what we do is, what I've learned is this, is if we're always trying to make it about the jurors, what can we do to make them remember to put it in their working memory? That's all my whole goal is, is listening. And when I get goosebumps and it hits me in the gut, I go, okay, stop, we're going to close our eyes, and we're going to work on that. And so what we do is one scene was uh, Manny was out um, on his cousin's uh, backyard, and they have a lot of parties. And what happened was he was sitting underneath this, this tin shed, and a light. Uh, they heard thunder, and a lightning bolt came and struck close to them, and he went down on his knees, and he was done for the rest of the night. That, that panic just took over. So what matters to me, and, and I'm getting goosebumps now, and so for what I do, it's very simple. You take a piece of paper and you draw a line down the middle, and on the left side is before, right side is after. But what is always consistent is the scene. So what I do with every witness, I say, okay, and I, I get silly. I, I say, okay, let's close our eyes. I said, what do you see? And they have to literally describe where they're standing. And so because if they don't tell a scene, then the jurors won't be there with them because the right. jurors are going, oh, that's that's my sister's kitchen. Oh, and it's got that island and the window. Oh, then they're at that place. And then, so always a scene and the story was lightning. And I've been bold enough now to say, I'm important, you're more important. These folks are everything. Talk to them. Because a lot of times they're looking at me and getting these harm witnesses, these people in his life to, to tell these stories so that as it's happening, you know, bringing them with my questions to first person, present tense, many stories, if it raise, if, if they, if it happens right, I have the paralegals, I don't, I get a stenographer, but I only use a stenographer if I, to move around the courtroom. And what the paralegals are doing is they're writing down what hit them or a disgusting question. So we're, we're, 
my close is about 80% done before I even start. And that's what I think a lot of the trial is, is meeting with witnesses and the S and S of before and afters and taking them to different parts. And that way, if I, if the trial's done and the paralegal says we meet that night about who these people are that hit me, then I know it's going in quotes in my closing and I'm going to pick on a juror that could resonate and drop that on them. So that's where a lot of my time is spent is, is what's the scene? Where are we? Then the story real quick that, you know, to make it that persuasive power just through the roof. And how do you find those, you call them harm witnesses and, and how do you harvest their stories? So we have a 20-20-20 rule. The, the client has to write down 20 reasons why they should get economic monies in the economic bucket, 20 reasons they should get monies in the human harms, and then 20 reasons about activities. So we have a special category called physical impairment, which I like to think of the body or brain or mind's uh, like inability or, or incapacity to function or perform due to structural changes. So it all comes back to that micro tissue uh, carrying signals to the brain. Uh, carrying pain to the brain. So with that, they'll usually write down different stories, write down all of the people. I bring them in and the meetings last hours and we just get to know them and and we just we just listen. And and so it's, you know, the clients have it all, You're just spending enough time to, you know, use your gut. We have more neurons in our gut than brain. And when something hits and we all get goosebumps and like, wowie, you need to share that. So it's it's pretty simple. It's it's a process of extracting, you know, you got to master the records, of course, but what happened in their life and then who's going to tell it at what stage, usually at the end of the day to end pretty powerful. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. You said you had a ton of experts as well. What type of experts did you have? We had a, a cognitive neuropsychologist. We had a pain management doctor a neurologist, a counselor, a chiropractic neurologist. We had a, a counselor, a physical therapist, an economist. We had a functional capacity evaluation, physical medicine rehabilitation, chiropractic neurologist. So those, and a life care planner. And they were all excellent. A lot of time spent with them planning. They had five experts, so they took over two and a half days with their experts. But again, I think what's key is half of the crosses Michael, were what the witnesses had said before. A play is writing itself as it's going. And so we're just going, well, what just happened? Let's, you know, that w- that's what matters, not the four years before. No, no, that's, that's, are you talking about when you're crossing their people? Yeah. Or when they're crossing your, yeah. I, I think that is so critical because, and especially you going in there, you know, with the being so present, because we go in there and we have all this anger and resentment over the crap that they pulled on us during the years of the litigation. And sometimes with some of these paid defense opinion witnesses, we've got decades of resentment towards them because they've been telling these lies for money for forever. But the jury hasn't experienced any of that. And so our possible, what we view as righteous indignation comes across as fear on our part. Like this, these other people must be really, really powerful. They must say something that really hurts us because we come in there angry and scared. And to go in there and just be, you know, forget about all that. Let's go talk about what's happening here in the courtroom, what the jury just heard. I think that's so much more powerful. Isn't it, though? It really is. 
it's a running tally and, and you can read in a transcript, but, but it's the neuron, it's the, it's the hairs, it's the goose pimples. That's when you're like, got them. Like that story is going to stick because we're all humans, right? I leave them with my emotion. And so if it's resonating with me, I'm in touch being present. It's It, it, it has resonated with them. And so what kind, what kind of, I don't want to call them experts. What kind of paid witnesses does the other side have? They had an economist that they flew out from California. They had a neuropsychologist. They had a pain management doctor. They had, golly, it's tough because I've had a couple uh, trials <laughs> since then. They had, jeez uh, Louise, the usual, you know, the, the usual. They, I, I, I actually, this is, I usually depose a lot of experts. And so I'll sometimes depose them for four to six hours. This was one of the cases where, where they deposed everyone on my side. I deposed all of the SWIFT employees because two weeks before trial, I was trying a punitive damage case. We couldn't get it against SWIFT because, er, because of uh, the farrier. But you know, two weeks before, I lost my whole trial. And I was like, wow, we like really amazing stuff that the jury was going to get fired up about. So with their experts, um, that's where I spent my time deposing the supervisor the driver's wife, the fleet terminal, uh, the manager, you know, yeah. the 30B6, right? But here I didn't. Now, some of the experts I had crossed in trials earlier in the year and last year, and I think what was really powerful, and I've done it twice now, is, again, it's how you say it. They they know I have a binder. They And so a couple of the experts I had seen before, and they're very, very well known. And I literally, you know, I, I literally said, you know what I'm about to do now, right? And the witness said, yeah. I said, you know, I'm going to pull out and I'm going to show you, you know, and so I, I don't even think I crossed, uh, I, I brought out any depositions, but it's that is taking the, the moral high ground, being very wise with your words, always staying on our side of the field. And the questions I, I, I came with a lot of, you know, again, it's I'm a, a, every morning I, I meditate for 30 minutes. I've been doing it for many, many, many years. It's, it is being that, that I, I was telling my wife, I said, you know, I'm going to do this podcast and I'm going to be talking about heart beams from my heart and, and, <laughs> and like, basically sending energy, a, a sacred heart meditation through my back and spreading love on all of them. And how's that going to come across? And she's like, you know, you, you do you. And so I think coming from, you know, to, if my goal is, I was born to be a trial lawyer, my goal is to reduce suffering. And if I have that peace, if I am that peace, that love, that ease, and I treat that person with respect, the, the jury knows that they've been paid a lot of money. They're hired by the adversary. But if they see a warrior who has compassion, and I think that's the hardest thing is having compassion for someone who doesn't have compassion. And I never veered from that, even, even how riled up I got because of all the BS and so many different lawyers and so forth. But we, it really is being respectful. Like one time I turned around to write something on the board and I said, I, I apologize. I said, that was disrespectful. I said, I didn't listen to you. Please, will you, will you say it again, sir? And they said it again. So I never, and that's who I am. And it took a lot of time to you know, to, to know myself, you know, and, and I think that's really where the, the big verdicts have come recently is knowing wh why I'm doing this. And it's to master the art of being an, uh, a great orator. I've seen the greats, I've hung around the greats and, and the discipline came in to say, everyone on the, watching this, you can do it too. Um, what's going to stop you getting up from five in the morning and practicing? And so that's, that's where it all came from. But just that respect and it caught the defense off guard and they weren't ready because some of the experts I had crossed, my old, I'm a Posner and Dodd chapter guy. I kind of did it wrong the first 10, 15 years because I didn't, no one was to show me. And I, and you know, my ego was there. And once I let that all go and said, let's have some fun, 
and be present. I think that the defense, those people knew, and even if they did, they they knew we were in the right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how that's coming across. I, I wanted to be brutally honest and share my truth. And there's just a lot of peace and love coming out to everybody. And, and you always take that high ground and, and the jurors, they, they see it, they feel it rather. Oh, I think that's so important not to be accidentally be two-faced in trial. I mean, you're, you're sitting there on peace and love. I love everybody. I care about everybody. But then when someone says something I, I don't like, then I turn and become a mean, vindictive person at them. Right. It's, and I believe I guilty until I realized what, what are you there for? Right. You're there. I'm so honored to, you know, and that, and, and connecting to the constitution and to what we do and how, and, and, you know, about helping people like golly, you can get me crying very quickly to talk about the righteousness and how proud you, what you and I get to do to, to represent other folks. And it's, it's beautiful, very proud. So I hope did that answer about the, the, um, getting to the defense experts. It did. Now, uh, for closing then, because you had an incredible result, because this, you know, sounds like you've got a disputed mild traumatic brain injury. Sounds like, I mean, you didn't have immediate hospitalization for something. You had a facet injuries. You don't, you said he hadn't had any injections. He hadn't had a surgery. What was the verdict? The verdict, fortunately, we get great interest. So the verdict was 5 million total, 7.5 with interest. And then we get cost on top of that. So it was, it was 5 million. It was basically uh, a million for physical impairment. Two million for non-economic, and I think three million for economic. And what did you? How did you argue to get that kind of those kind of numbers? The way I do it is I I really fo- in Voidir I set up sort of the three. I use my hands and say, look, folks, we we've got three tiers of damages, and so the economic is you know past and future, and, and essentially that's just that's just to put Manny where he would have been if this never happened. And there's a great lawyer I'm blank on his name who says, you know, we just need a calculator to do that. And so that was kind of, you know, that's sort of black and white. I use the appraisal argument. With the non-economic, you know, again, we went through, I've got some demonstratives showing, you know, all of the elements of his pride as a man. Doing what you love with the people you love, that's everything, right? So why do we work so hard, right? That the weekends and, and the week nights to be with the people you love and just doing whatever makes you tick, the things that are big to you but small to other people. So the human harms is, you know, that was a lot of stories and um, in quotes and reminding. But the big third, the, the physical impairments, the changes to the body, the structural changes, I really tried to hit home that hard. I, I you know, I hope because um, it, it's not capped. So some of the arguments was the nerves. And I have a picture of, of nerves running out of the body. And they, they tried to say it was too prejudicial. I'm like, this is what makes us human. You know, you take away our skin and you can recognize someone just by their nerves. So with closing, I, I, I take a little bit from everyone, from Don Bauermeister, I mean, Aaron Deshaw. I mean, I'm, I, every little sentence I say is from a book or a webinar and it's in persuasion, Caldini, and it all comes together. And then really what's most important is how you deliver it. I, I use PowerPoint. My pace was very good. And we had a, and, and the two things right before I, I get up to close, well, one, three things. One is I do, I have a lot of side things. I, I, I beatbox and a semi-professional beatboxer. I jump rope. I, so I, right before closing, I had my team, my AV gentleman, Mrs. Caro, who joined us, my two assistant paralegal, they sat and I, I gave my closing and then something happened. And then I, they said, do your voice warm up. And then I started beatboxing, skinny boys, fat boys, run DMC, you name it. 
And it got me into a, I don't know what it was, a place where I felt, you know, Josh Carton just let it all out, just be you. When I went and right before closing, my paralegal, and we practiced this, right? Do a lot of practice about what to say to me, right? What to say to a witness right before priming. I said, how are you going to prime you? You know, we practice on what are you going to say to the witnesses walking into the courtroom and and what are you going to say to me? And she said, why are we here? Why are we here? I'm getting goosebumps and it's for this man. And, and, and I believe money, money, civil justice is money. Money is civil justice. And I, I believe in our right to do what we do. And when I was giving the closing argument, the reclose it, everything. And some of the crosses were like this. I, I, I wrote down and I went with, with, you know, my gut and the right before, right before I was going to um, get up for reclose, my client wrote me a sticky note and she wrote, ah, oh, it gets me going. She wrote, I lost my dance partner. Mm-hmm. And I got up to do the closing and I had certain points to point out. And, you know, the judge was like, you got five minutes and I'm like counting down and I have a timer. And then I knew it was just the right, everything was just right about the trial. And of course, a little bit of luck and a lot of practice. And the, and the last thing I said, you know, and it was to, it was to the foreman, it was to a millennial and I, Rex Paris said, you know, don't deny justice. And I look, really looked at that foreman because we usually know who the foreman is. I said, I said, don't deny Manny justice. And I looked, I paused and I looked at Maribel and she, I looked back at me and I said, you know, Maribel, she lost her dance partner and that should count for something. And I just, I, I was connecting the whole time to that foreman. And that really was it. And I think being yourself, I, I asked my AV guy, I said, you know, he, he sees the, the Berg Simpsons and the, and the, the you know, the greats um, do huge trials. And I said, what is it? I said, you know, I study persuasion. I, I said, that's all I'm, I was born to be a trial lawyer, like every weekend, every night, this is what I do. I said, what is it that makes greats great? What do you know what he said to me? Hmm. He said, Peter, he says, it's, he says, you, you got good pace. I would say pace because cadence over content, right? You need that slowness. But he said, what makes the great is that at the right time, you have that moral righteousness calling out the other side with respect and compassion and love, but calling them out for their position and being justified, being in a way indignant, morality. And he said, that's what makes the greats great are those moments where they take it all in, being present and take that high road and make it impactful. And, And I think it all kind of lined up and, and um, it's crazy because I was working on five hours of sleep and it was one of the worst, it's, it's, <laughs> as you know, right? It's hard work. I mean, golly. How do you find the energy to do all the things you do? I am a chiropractor trapped in a trial lawyer's body. I, putting on those seminars, um, like I, this morning I ran because I knew I was going to see you. So I got a good jog on. I laser my brain every day. I have a vibration plate. I have an infrared sauna. It's diet. It's it's all it's it's really simple, right? So it's my wife calls me the Energizer Bunny. I'm I'm born with unlimited en- energy, and I think racing, endurance, dirt bikes, and and competing in jujitsu helps. But it's diet. It is literally fish oil. I, I remember Dan Ambrose and Deshaw were at my house. We we rode some motorcycles. I think the the summit before last, and I literally said to Ambrose, I said. He, he saw me, you know, fish oil and greens first. He says, what are you doing? I said, you need to be at the precipice of, of diarrhea to be fully lubricated. So a lot of it is <laughs> what you put in your pie hole, 
my diet is one-to-one correlated to my emotion and also planning. And, you know, I, I, I've been married for 26 years to the, the same woman. I have three incredible friends. And so you exercise, you keep, you, you, you know, I, I would probably say spirituality and diet, right? So just knowing, getting the ego out of it, having close friends, being the love, the PCs, meditating, being good to yourself. And, and then look, I'm, I'm a, I wanted to say, you know, it's great, right? You, you, you help these people, a lot of huge verdicts. I think this year with settlements over 40 million and, and I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be a trial lawyer and, and the help I've done to people. But let's face it, this is a, a grueling profession. It is, if I, I don't have kids, but my wife says, you know, how many great trial lawyers are on their, you know, second or third husband or, or wife? And yeah. if I had, and, and I had kids and I realized like the team, the practice, fortunately, and I'll end with this, fortunately, my, I'm, I go very deep in a few areas. So I race dirt bikes, I try cases, and then I kick it to the Caribbean for, for and I'm just about to head there for a month with my, for my 50th birthday. So I think you got to know yourself, reset. And, 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 and to be good to yourself. And, you know, when you come home, if you did your best, that, folks, that's all you can do. And your best is good enough and believe in yourself. Well, yours has been pretty darn good lately. And uh, you've definitely earned a, a Caribbean holiday. I look forward to uh, the next time we meet, though. I think, are you going to AJ in Philly or? I'm not going to AJ in Philly. I'm definitely going to see you in Adla and ATL. Okay, good. Yeah, ATAA in uh, October in Atlanta. Yeah, uh, encourage everyone to go to that if you want to meet Peter. I'm sure he'd be people would be he'd be glad to come up and talk to you. And I'm always glad every time some, someone at dinner told me last night that I hadn't met before they were fans of my. You know, they like the podcast. That makes me so happy uh, just to know that anyone listens and gets something out of it. It's it, it's impressive. You really have given a lot to the profession, uh, Michael. So on behalf of everyone that hasn't thanked you at dinner, thank you for all for you and your team for all that you've done giving and sharing this advice to to other lawyers and and i guess the community right because anybody can listen to podcasts so thanks for for all your work in the, in doing this well you're welcome and i do have a, an action list based on this of things i'm going to go do and talk to my people about at our friday training so i do really appreciate you coming on excuse the cough i'm just getting over a pretty bad case of bronchitis which is why we had to reschedule this and i appreciate you working with me on the scheduling too of course of course um i'm, I'm hopefully you're feeling better and you're keeping up the running I can't run yet. I got hopefully by next week I'll be able to run again. I, I, I do want to go back before we. I mean, it feels like we're ending, but there's one thing I did not ask you that I do want to ask you. You also, at some point in your life, were an insurance claims manager. Yes. What have you learned? What did you learn from that process, or that experience that has benefited you as a plaintiff's lawyer? I. Great question. I, I think when I first started back in 2001, there, every five to seven years, in addition to our personality changes and our cells changing, there seems to be certain subject matters um, in the legal field. And I remember it probably was because I was working at Lawyers Weekly USA. I was a claims adjuster and then a manager and, and meeting and using computer programs at Liberty Mutual in Wausau and meeting Aaron DeShaw, I realized what, how the industry tracks us. In fact, I'm the guy who, there was a great book by a gentleman who's since passed called Bendit, uh, Bernanelli called Good Hands to Boxing Gloves. Yeah, great book. I literally, remember that book? Yeah. I bought 3,000 books and mailed it to every chiropractor in Colorado. I had a bad list and so we had like 500 come back. It was a nightmare, but... <laughs> What I, I think is important is to understand how we are tracked, meaning 
truly do, does everybody know when you send a, a settlement opportunity letter to an insurance company, do you know what is exactly, what, what happens? And I think knowing how they track your tax ID, knowing that if you're a trial lawyer, that matters. And I, so I think right off the bat, when I, in 01, I started, you know, I was wearing a suit every day because I lived in Manhattan. I lived in Philly. I lived in Boston. And when I moved to Boulder, Colorado, I essentially said, well, I just need to try cases. And I, I started doing false imprisonment, and trespassing and kidnapping and DUIs because that's I just wanted to be in trial. And then I started when I, I, I started to try a lot of cases. And I remember one year, I think it was in 07 or 08, I had like eight jury trials. We won them all. And all of a sudden, the next year, everything that came in, I settled at limits. So it's the, the understanding of it's a computer. It's nothing personal. You need to find out the decision maker. You need to find out what program they're using. Sure, all of us, you know, you get the uh, claims IQ or Colossus, what have you, and then getting into bad faith, knowing what happens. But coming out of law school, I realized if in order to help people, I have to be a trial lawyer. I, I want to ask you one question. Um, sure. The more I do this work, and I, I, it's really doing it to me. I mean, I'm, I was born to be a trial lawyer. I keep realizing how much it takes to get to, you know, have having these successes and, and repeatedly getting multi-million dollar verdicts. And I, I, I look at Europe and I think, will our society go to a barrister and solicitor? Because the amount of time it takes to understand the cognitive science, the persuasion, suasion, the NLP, the, the put a playwright, casting directors. I mean, I've nearly had seven career paralegals litigation, and but they're like, I, I don't even know what you're doing. Because I'm a trial law firm, and I and I, it's hard to find paralegals who have trial experience. And I just wonder, in you doing all of this, you see what it takes, and do you think in due time, maybe we should go to a to for people to have a board certification or to to you know what are your thoughts of hard it is? And you probably have seen some lawyers who haven't dedicated and and the results of it. So we'll, I know it's a big question, but I, I'd love to know what you think of sort of that subspecialty of, of the effort it takes to be a trial lawyer and should there in the future be a, be a distinction? Oh, that's an interesting question. So I think it would benefit clients a lot. I think it also, you know, what I've realized running a law firm, uh, which is different than being a trial lawyer, different skill set, different uh, activities. It is a different skill set to try a case than it is to work up a case. And Everybody says that they want to be a trial lawyer because that's what we're supposed to say. We're conditioned that you're supposed to say that. But most lawyers I found don't really have a burning desire to try cases. And you, you could tell that by, uh, you know, we, we're having conversations in the office right now, even with uh, a co-counsel. We have a case with an underinsured defendant, but it's a corporation that I believe has the assets to one, to pay to pay more than their limits, at least, and two, that needs to know that you can't just have this level of coverage and this big of a business, and then, you know, you really, really hurt somebody, and you're going to get away with it. But so I'm like, well, let's just try the case. And and we're in Texas where we can advance living expenses to clients, and I'm even like, look, let's figure out what the client would, would net, you know, with reasonable reductions in the medical bill, and, you know, I'll put my money where my mouth is. And even then, I'm seeing some discomfort about the idea of turning down the limits when there's no bad faith because we've never asked for the limits and because we wouldn't take them uh, and just trying the case. Well, something bad could happen. Well, yeah, it could. 
but something great can happen too. And it would be a lot of fun and I want to do it. And it's the client's, you know, obviously it's the client's decision, but you know, the client's decision is really 95% plus of the time, how we speak to the client informs the client's decision. So if you tell the client, this is an injustice, they should not be able to get away with this. You deserve so much more. What do you have to lose? I think you have a good chance of getting more. And if not, you're probably, the odds of getting less than their limits in this trial is really slim. You know, I can't say it's a 0% chance, but, you know, there's a better, the you know, the, the better course of action for you is to go try the case and I want to try it for you versus, well, you know, you never know what's going to happen. It's really risky. The expenses are going to go way up. You may end up with even less money in your pocket. I, you know, it's how you have that conversation indicates whether that client's going to go trial or not. And, you know, I think the how we have those conversations is is really motivated by whether we really want to go to trial or not. So I think having having the class of I can hand it over to someone else and let them do it may may result better. And I think being able to get in the courtroom more often because one of the things I get frustrated in is I just you know I get ready for six or eight trials a year, but if I get you know one to three, I'm happy. Uh, I mean, I'd like to try more, but it's hard to get in there just because you get bumped or the case settles. And... Yeah. No, no good points, Michael. I, I think of the jury bias. I, I went to the jury bias back. It was in Atlanta. It was a, a week long program back in 04, 05. And I, I feel like, you know, that's sort of a subspecialty. It's a, it's an AAJ uh, committee that I, I attend. Yeah. And, you know, I think the world of Wenner and Kuzumano, but there's, you know, that's just one little aspect and knowing about you know, suspicion and how to address all of that. And, yeah. and then, you know, then you get into you know, your area of expertise, which, which mine, I've, is, is trucking, right? So I went to trucking school. I, I took the, the boards last weekend. And so, you know, yeah. So not only, so, you know, I keep thinking you've got the trial, which is, you can go so deep. I mean, especially with voir dire and researching those jurors. And I mean, that's, that's, I, I could talk an hour about how I do voir dire differently but and then you've got the law of, of trucking. But I, I, I just keep thinking like it's I'm in my I'm, I'm in my stride. Um, and I, I just wonder, like, wow, it took me 20 years to get here. And um, I just wonder if, if our profession will change in due time of, of, of saying, hey, every lawyer needs to be board certified at a minimum. Yeah. So thanks for sharing. Yeah. I, I mean, I. You know, I, I don't want to take away opportunities from others. I just always wonder what would serve the clients and what would give the people that really want it the most opportunity to get in there. I don't know. I do think I do see, you know, one of the big industry changes is we've gone from, you know, it used to be the big advertising firms would try to settle what they could, maybe do some light litigation or refer out trials. And now you're seeing some of the bigger advertising firms actually building trial teams like their barrister units and getting some really, really good lawyers that are getting really, really good results. Uh, you know, you think of you know, uh, Keith Mitnick and Rick Block at Morgan and Morgan. I mean, the, you know, Sonara's got some great people. Daryl Isaacs has some people that are getting very, I mean, you know, these different big advertising firms, you know, bad for my business model uh, as a referral based lawyer, but that's okay. I still celebrate it. But I mean, that's, uh, you know, we'll see. The ind- well, the industry is going to be very interesting over the next uh, 10 or 20 years, especially if states are fullest enough to keep allowing experiment with non non lawyer ownership of law firms and hedge funds start coming in and buying them and right on yeah uh, yeah totally going to change a lot but I think there's always going to be opportunities if we keep our minds open for them yeah agreed agreed well Peter thank you so much for coming on the show hey right right back at you thanks for for inviting me Michael I, I really appreciate it 
And for our listeners, thank you for listening today. Uh, I do want to encourage everybody. We still have some spaces left at my Big Rig Boot Camp on June 16th in San Antonio. If you're interested in possibly attending, it's the BigRigBootCamp.com. I would love to see you. And even if not, I hope you join us on our next episode of Trial Lawyer Nation. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at TrialLawyerNation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.